And welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. We've got a great episode for you today. I'm talking to another two-time guest, Dr. Anita Sangupta. If you remember last time on the program, we had a few technical difficulties. Sound wasn't up to Glencoe standards, but that is not going to be the case today, as I am completely confident we will have nothing but crystal clear audio. As I talked to Dr. Sangupta about her newest project, something very interesting called the Cold Atom Laboratory, where basically uh, her and a couple other scientists are going to flirt with absolute zero, getting gases and atoms as close to absolute zero as they possibly can with current methods in order to understand what exactly goes on at extremely low temperatures. And this cool little lab is going to get blasted off to the International Space Station uh, sometime this year. Very exciting, another monumental piece of human history orchestrated by one Dr. Anita Sangupta. So we got so much to cover. This is, there's, there's a really a lot of stuff I want to get to. So let's get right into this. Dr. Sangupta, thanks for being on the program again. Uh, do you like Dr. Sangupta? Do you like Doc? Do you like Anita? Do you like AS? DAS? What do you like? <laughs> the doctor. The <laughs> doctor. Oh, pardon me. The first female doctor. That's a Doctor Who reference, isn't it? Yeah, of course it is, yes. But no, you can just call me Anita. <laughs> I will call you Anita. Uh, the doc, the doctor. So, you, you, last time you were on the program, you teased the Cold Atom Laboratory. Now, we're going to get into that in a second, because I'm very excited. To, that We're talking about the coldest place in the universe um, although I'm going to put you to the test on that, I'm not sure it is the coldest place in the universe, and I got some, I got some something up my sleeve about that. But we'll get to that later. Um, now let's talk about your background. Why did you get into super cold places? Is it is your heart uh, a block of ice, or what made you get into this type of stuff? Uh, I like to eat ice cream. <laughs> ice cream based. Uh, well, I guess. That you have to think about the concept of what temperature actually is. Okay. So temperature is actually just a measure of speed. Um, so the faster you're going, the higher temperature you have. And ultimately, if you were able to stop atoms or molecules to be absolutely not moving at all, motionless, they would be at absolute zero. So that's what temperature is. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, it's really more um, related to being interested in physics and okay. atomic physics. Okay, at a, at a an atomic level. Yeah. Um, what I thought was kind of interesting about this, and this is going to be the big tease, and then we're going to go into something else, but while I was researching this, and I didn't realize, and I happened to catch this on one of your interviews, you said when something, as something approaches absolute zero, uh, the wave becomes basically a quantum property. It loses its material property, becomes a quantum property, which is waves, and as you approach absolute zero, the waves will encompass and take over the universe. Uh, I believe those are your words. Um, a little ominous, but can you explain that just a little bit? 
So as you basically get slower and slower and slower, your wave function gets bigger and bigger and bigger. So if you literally could cool something to absolute zero, then your wave function would be infinite. So it's impossible to cool something to absolute zero. But if you actually could, in the infinite limit of something, that's what it would achieve. So I didn't know that. And I'm, I'm pretty versed in science. I, I don't want to sit and bore you with the details of quantum physics right now. We don't have that kind of time. But I know a lot about science. I didn't know that absolute zero was was kind of like a. I knew it was a limit, but I had no idea that something would become infinitely wavelengthable. Uh, that's a technical term. <laughs> but there's also a, a. So that's the that's the stopping point. That's the slowest an object can go, and you can't even really get that. Much like with the speed of light, something becomes infinitely massive as it approaches the speed of light. So we have two speed limits in the universe. Yes. You seem nonplussed at all. That was like a big revelation for me. Okay. I didn't know that. That's amazing. <laughs> Well, yeah, I guess I, there's it's it's boundary conditions almost if you think of it yeah. that way. So, I mean, and then you can't approach. I mean, you you can try and approach them, but as you approach them, they get you know it gets more and more difficult to actually get to that point. So. Right. Okay, I thought that was amazing. I guess you work with this every day. This is. Well, I I think it is pretty cool. Do pun you? intended. Do you? <laughs> yes. Uh, now your first now the first thing that kind of that was your well I, I'm sure you, you did lots of other things before that we're going to get into but the thing you're kind of known for is landing a rover on Mars we went into detail in our last interview uh, but I think it's so amazing it's worth going into again um, but what made you want to explore space what like why why space why the final frontier well I actually just love the unknown um, whatever it happens to be and I think as a small child I was a huge science fiction fan so I was very much exposed to space travel, time travel, alien civilizations. Um, and so that was the most interesting to me. The The normal world around me wasn't as interesting. So I think as I was growing up, I was trying to understand what could I do to position myself to be able to work in that field as an adult. And so that's kind of why I decided to go into air engineering, specifically aerospace engineering, and why I wanted to work um, for the space program. So it's basically just exploring the unknown. I know you can do that in different ways, um, but for me, um, exploring the universe is probably the ultimate way to, to look into that aspect of the unknown. So I'm going to ask you a question that I already know the answer to, but I want to see how you answer this. Okay. Who inspired you uh, to kind of go along your path that you're doing now? Well, there, I would say there's several different aspects to it. So I, I liked very much science fiction and characters in science fiction. So I, I love the character, the doctor from Doctor Who. Um, I love the character Spock from Star Trek. My dad was a mechanical engineer. So I had a lot of um, exposure to being sort of a very intelligent, analytical um, engineer type mind, just in terms of my, my home life, as well as the things I would watch on TV and science fiction that I would read. So I would say that's probably what inspired me. So in an interview, you said most of that, but here's the order that you gave, which I found it to be very amazing. You said, Mr. Spock, I thought he was a doctor. I didn't know he was a mister. Mr. Spock, Data, the doctor, and I, I know you like Tom Baker, but you also said Chris Eccleston, right? He's, the, he's my favorite one from the new set of doctors. Okay. The new school. <laughs> right. There's a lot of them. Uh, and then you said your mom and dad, which I thought was a very, inter is a very interesting priority. Because, first of all, mom and dad at the bottom and <laughs> behind three fictional characters, possibly four. And also you went two guys that are known for their logic, one being a robot. And then you have the doctor who is a, he's re a real loose cannon when it comes to space exploration and time exploration. You know, he's kind of reckless. He's not the kind of logical guy that you would think of when you're comparing him to the other two. I thought that was an interesting choice. And then in an interview, someone brought them all together, and I was like, oh, this is, this is insightful into Anita's mind. And they said that they're all tortured souls. 
and that you have an affinity for tortured souls. Why is that? Are you a tortured soul? <laughs> that is true. I think that was like a BBC interview with yeah. Kevin Fong, okay. I believe it Shameless was. Shameless plug. Um, yes, that uh, was what it was. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I actually, so I think the thing I liked about all those characters was their intelligence, their innocence, um, and they are, had a, different ways of approaching it, right? So Data was approaching it from wanting to be human. Spock was approaching it from fighting being human. Um, and the Doctor was approaching it from loving human beings. So I think there's different ways, different aspects of approaching the same uh, sort of things from purely for the purpose of exploration and from a very innocent perspective. So I think that's what I really liked about all those characters. And they were all very compassionate in their own way too, even though Data couldn't have emotions, for example, or yeah. even though Spock wasn't supposed to right. um, you know, utilize his emotions you know, when he sacrificed sacrificed himself um, for you know, the needs alert. of the, well, that's Star Trek too, <laughs> decades and decades ago. <laughs> Still a spoiler. <laughs> that's true, but I suppose now the timeline is slightly different with the new Star it Trek is. movies. But yeah, um, Another spoiler. <laughs> <laughs> Stop ruining <laughs> movies for people. We're, we're time traveling here. Yes. Um, but I, I think for me, science fiction just really does uh, allow you to explore the unknown um, in, in a very imaginative way as well. So, sure. And I think all those characters represent that, different aspects of that. So now, now, you are a very ambitious woman. You've made uh, you know, a lot of points on seeing women in science, and, and you, um, you know, you've done a lot of amazing things. Do you have an inner drive? This is kind of what's curious to me because I, I, I wonder about people who achieve great things. Do you have an inner drive that pushes you to be better or did you have siblings you competed with? Because I know I competed with my sister, and that's part of the reason why um, I want to crush her into dust. So that, <laughs> so that was gave me my, one of my competitive spirits. And also, she wants to crush me into dust. So we kind of fueled each other. Um, or is this an inner drive that comes you know, strictly from inside? Well, for me, I actually don't like competition. Really? So I don't like to play team sports because I don't like to play for points. I really don't like competition. I feel like the world has enough competition in it as it enough as it already is. So for me, that doesn't drive me at all. I did have a brother, um, and I would say I probably always lost to him because he was an older brother. So we would play sports, and I would usually lose. And so maybe that was one of the reasons yeah, I didn't like competition. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so if anything, that probably made me not want to compete. Um, but I think for me, it was just there are different challenges, and so I. Could, I get bored pretty easily, so I have to be very challenged, whether it's a physical challenge or intellectual challenge. So I'd say that's probably what drives me more than anything else, this is challenge. the challenge. Right. Yeah, and it, it has to be a new challenge, right? So my career has been roughly five-year intervals where I've done something, and then I've moved on to something else, because eventually after five years, you've kind of done a, a lot of what you can do. You've answered a whole bunch of questions. You probably benefit from going to something else. So that's why I change every five years what I have an expertise in. Now, you know setting up challenges for yourself uh, is literally the definition of competition that you try to overcome. So you are competitive, but you're competitive with yourself. Okay. The ultimate competition. <laughs> I'm being psychoanalyzed. You are, absolutely. <laughs> I want to I land stuff on Mars. i got to figure out how to do it. Now, you love Doctor Who. Have you ever thought about, um, you know, a lot of the inventions we have nowadays come from science fiction, movies, and stuff. There's Doctor Who's a little fantastical, but is there ever is there anything in the Doctor Who world that you would that you think could be brought into that could be invented for our world? Oh well, I suppose the sonic screwdriver. Could it? Right. Well, I mean, it may not be. It may not do the things that the sonic screwdriver does, but you can use ultrasonics for a whole variety of things, like shaking things, vibrating things, and cleaning things. So one of the applications would huh. be you can use an ultrasonic cleaner to knock dust off of surfaces. Um, which, for example, on the surface of Mars, you've got a lot of dust being deposited all the time because there's constant dust up in the atmosphere. So if you have an ultrasonic, you know, surface as opposed to a screwdriver, then you can help to clean up the solar arrays. Oh, that's kind of cool. I mean, but don't they have toothbrushes that kind of use sonic? 
Yeah, you could for, for almost anything. Yeah, you could use it for, you know, you don't have to use it for Mars. You could use it on your teeth. <laughs> <laughs> that's, I did, yeah, I guess that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, now, let's talk about landing the thing, landing the thing, and by the thing I mean the Mars Curiosity rover. Uh, let's go over that process really quickly because it's very important, uh, not only this interview, but to, I think mankind in general. Um, so w- tell me about your involvement in, in that whole process. So I was part of the entry, descent, and landing team. So that's the phase of the mission where you basically go through the Martian atmosphere and slow yourself down from really, really fast speeds um, down to roughly two miles an hour. So you go roughly from 13,000 miles an hour to two miles an hour. So my portion of responsibility was related to the supersonic parachute. And um, basically, we don't build the parachute. A vendor outside of um, you know a company basically in the Northeast builds the parachute. Um, but we are responsible for coming up with the requirements, um, for overseeing the fabrication, and then for doing all of the analysis and testing on it from a supersonic qualification perspective. So the, the pa- and the parachute, like not to understate this at all, the parachute was the key reason why this thing landed on Mars, wouldn't you say? I mean, this is your part was quintessential to the success. Well, they all are. No, so no. <laughs> the, no, the parachute. <laughs> the parachute's the most important part. So the reason why they're all important is because it's a single string system. So if sure. any part doesn't work, and it all happens in sequence, so if the uh-huh. heat shield doesn't work or doesn't set you, doesn't basically, if you don't have enough drag to slow you down to the right speeds, then you can't actually deploy the parachute. If the parachute doesn't work and slow you enough down to the right speeds, then you can't do the um, basically sky cream maneuver. So each one um, is necessary for the next one to happen because they happen serially. And they all have their own technical challenges. There were very unique technical challenges associated with the parachute just because of the aerodynamic regime that it was flying in. Right. Um, so that's what made it very difficult and a very interesting problem. And also very difficult to replicate on Earth because you guys can't really test it in its true form on the planet we currently reside on, right? Yes, because uh, that's the challenge of landing something on another planet is that if it's different from Earth, which it most likely is, um, so for example, Earth, the gravity is three times as high. Earth, the atmosphere is primarily nitrogen and some oxygen, whereas on Mars it's CO2. So that changes the aerodynamic properties quite a bit. Also, the density as a function of altitude is quite different, um, you know, here on Earth as it is on Mars, because the surface density on Mars is only 1% of what it is on Earth. So it's impossible to match the conditions for a an atmospheric reentry here on Earth to Mars because of those differences. So you have to do what you can to understand the physics and then um, get to a portion of that. So what's kind of cool about the Mars descent, because like you said, there's different phases of this whole thing, and they were all kind of, uh, they're, they're, they were weird ways to kind of tackle the problem, but they worked perfectly, as you said, because we landed it on Mars. But, you know, the, the, the idea of a, of a parachute it seems like you can use a parachute to stop like a human being, but we're talking about stopping things that are multiple times the speed of sound. And so just even that concept that you'd use uh, something as every day as a parachute uh, just seems like kind of a cool concept. You know? And also the, the, um, the sky crane technique, which gets a lot of, of press as well. So that basically you had this, this arm that kind of landed it delicately on the surface with retro rockets. And then when that happened, the piece that was landing it the, the retro rockets like flew off into the distance, right? Isn't this yes. Something? So that's, I mean, that's like something out of a sci-fi movie. So there's another piece, uh, an inoperable piece of equipment on Mars somewhere. Yes, and, and it was designed to have enough propellant so that it would have sufficient amount of propellant so that it could do a maneuver to divert itself away from the rover. So basically once the rover gets set down, the tethers that were connecting the rover to the descent stage, is what that portion was called, did sort of a tilt 45 degrees and then flew off to the side and crash landed a safe distance away. But yeah, there's a whole there's a whole suite of reasons of why we picked all those particular technologies, and they were complicated. But it was necessary to be able to land something that 
large, that heavy, with that kind of precision on the surface. And the other thing is that every single thing that was done, you guys were hearing about it after it had already been completed. So the second the thing enters the atmosphere, it's already, it either is or is not on the surface of, of the Mars at that point. Yes, and that's where the speed of light comes in because electromagnetic waves travel at the speed of light, uh, which means that it takes the amount of time that it takes for the photons to you know, go from uh, Mars um, back up to orbit around Mars by the you know, communications orbiting satellite and then back over to Earth. That's the time delay associated with it. Wow. So now your, so your, your role in that was to slow down an object that was being shot through the world, through the universe. Yes. But your previous practice was in propulsions, which is getting things up to those crazy speeds that someone else would have to slow down at some point. Um, how, how does that transition happen? Like, how did you get picked for the parachute mission? Well, so that's interesting because I think, um, yeah, that is true. And that just takes me to the next project, which is also slowing things down. Yeah. Um, you went from going really, really fast to slowing <laughs> things down. Like you're running the gamut of speed. Here, so like my first job was actually working on the development of the Delta IV launch vehicle. And so I had a background in chemical propulsion systems. And so then I shifted over to doing electric propulsion systems. Um, for communication satellites and then for Deep Space One and the Dawn mission, the ion engines for that. So Which I had a background. Ion propulsion. Yes. Just like the same thing that powers the TIE fighters in Star Wars. Yes, and, and I think the Enterprise yeah. ion drive. <laughs> yes, that's true. They're both, they're all ion drives. <laughs> so, but I think if you have a, there, you can be a propulsion expert in both chemical propulsion as well as electric propulsion, which is kind of what my back, uh, background or my expertise is in. But because I had a background in aerodynamics and computational fluid dynamics and sort of you know testing or experimental testing in wind tunnels, it made me a good fit for the parachute job because nobody really is an expert in parachutes. Like you could probably find maybe five people uh, in one company and five people in another company, and that's all there really is. And then they're focused probably on subsonic parachutes for Earth-based applications, for sport parachuting applications. You can never really uh, you know, get a, a sort of a degree in that kind of thing. So if you have the right background from an aerodynamics perspective, from a structural mechanics perspective, then you can pick it up. So now, this so this big thing, this, landing a rover on Mars is pretty big. Uh, I don't want to say it's defined your career, but it's definitely a watershed mark. Do you have any fear that that's all people will ever remember you for as the woman who landed a rover? I mean, look, that's great, but is this your Pulp Fiction? Where do you go from here? Is, this, is it all downhill? Is that a career pinnacle and you're going to retire? Um, what happens here? You don't want to be a one-trick pony. <laughs> well, I, for me, I think each accomplishment is a separate accomplishment. So I'm, I'll always be very proud of that. And But at the same time, I probably wouldn't want to do it again because I like to always do something different. So I think, um, no, I don't think that bothers me at all. I think it was a wonderful journey. And then I'm on a, a currently a different journey now. So I think that's the nature of aerospace where you work on, you can work on very different things from one job to the next job. And then you sort of reinvent yourself each time. Well, since we're on Mars, really quickly, uh, I saw you do a, a presentation on, on Mars itself and what life would be like there. First of all, would you ever want to visit Mars? Like, is this uh, an ambition of yours to become an astronaut? Um, I think it would be amazing to visit Mars. Um, so I probably would if you know, the opportunity arose some point in the, in the near future, but I don't think it's going to happen in the quite so near future. Uh, but at the same time, I think the one thing that you realize as you get older is that Earth is a very beautiful planet. So um, there's so many more amazing places to visit on Earth. And then in general, in the solar system, there's so many neat places to visit in the solar system. But yeah, if somebody gave me the opportunity to go to Mars, of course I would go. And you talked about it's actually very difficult to live on the surface of Mars. We were to establish a colony there. Uh, and I know we've all seen Total Recall. Uh, I'm not going to spoil anything, but they live on Mars, 
and they have a lot of battles, not the least of which is oxygen, food production, uh, protection from radiation. How do you think uh, we could live on, on Mars um, safely, easily, and cheaply if I wanted to invest in something like that? You know, I just rewatched Total Recall like yesterday or the, the day old, before, the, the old one. Good yes. for you. <laughs> Actually read the, uh, the book too, the, the short story uh-huh. recently by Philip K. Dick, which is quite different. But um, yes. So there are many challenges, but the good news is that Mars actually does have a lot of resources that we can utilize, right? So we can probably get water that's frozen to the subsurface on Mars and use that to grow plants. Um, from a radiation perspective, we can make use of the Martian soil, the regolith, to actually sort of bury habitats underneath that as a means of shielding us from the radiation environment. Um, we can use the CO2 and the water to produce potentially methane. So we have, you know, this whole technique you can use called in situ resource utilization. So you want to be able to utilize as many of the Mars-based resources as you can for water, um, you know, splitting up the water to get oxygen so that you can bring less with you um, as you're there. So it certainly would be very challenging, but one could make the argument that the space station is even more challenging because for the space station, you're basically, you know, in the vacuum of space, you have to protect yourself, right? So you have to have Mm -hmm. a pressurized vehicle more so than you would on the surface of Mars. You have to bring all your supplies with you. So the fact that we're able to get over the, um, you know, environmental control system challenge of being um, not a space station means that actually takes us a long way as to how we would do that on the surface of Mars. So it's true, it's a longer distance away from Earth, Um, But we do have um, gravity on the surface of Mars. We do have, you know, the ability to tap into frozen water supplies and then potentially make our own fuel. Hmm. So so it is possible. And you could also make deliveries there as well. You could have some kind of, you know, transport other resources that you can't find on Mars because obviously there's not a lot on Mars. Um, yes, that we know of. So you would you would imagine that there would be a constant sort of supply chain of of vehicles dropping supplies off of that we had people colonize colonizing the surface of the planet. Sure. Uh, so now let's move on. So you've 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 done Mars, you know, space exploration. Let's check that off off the the list. Now you're moving on to what is possibly the hardest thing for me to kind of wrap my head around, uh, but really amazing is you're now working with absolute zero with cold temperatures in a thing called the Cold Atom Laboratory. Uh, We touched on it earlier, but talk about exactly what the goals of the mission are and keep in mind that there are not a lot of scientists listening to this. So eighth grade vocabulary may be helpful for people listening. (laughs) And it is so... For me, I mean. I mean for me. Eighth grade vocabulary for me. So uh, Cold Atom Laboratory is a atomic physics facility which is going to go on board the International Space Station. And so the primary purpose of the facility is to make something called a Bose-Einstein condensate, which is another state of matter. Um, I can talk about a little bit more detail sort of in a separate question. But it's basically when you cool down a gas of bosons to a temperature just above absolute zero and it starts to take on really unique properties. Um, And specifically, it starts to perform or behave more like a wave. Um, particle billiard balls hitting each other. It it looks more wave-like in nature. And there are really unique things that happen at those temperatures, such as superfluidity, uh, superconductivity. Um, And we don't really understand what the properties of matter are going to be and how they could be potentially harnessed, um, you know, for technology applications. But just the fundamental physics behind it is what's interesting. And there's certain techniques that you have to use to be able to get atoms down to these temperatures. And those techniques are actually facilitated by doing uh, this type of experiment in a microgravity environment, which is the reason why we're putting it on the International Space Station. And so getting to colder temperatures means getting to understand a whole potential new regime of physics at those temperatures. Um, And so the reason why we want to do it is 
the things that we learn at really cold temperatures um, are things that we've never seen before. So the, the perfect example would be superfluidity, right? Until people had gotten helium down to those temperatures, they had never seen a superfluid. And what a superfluid is, if you had a, a cup of water um, and you put your spoon in it and you spun it around, like you just stirred your spoon around, the fluid would basically spin around forever, right? Because there's no losses. There's no viscous dissipation going on within that fluid. And that's basically what a Bose-Einstein condensate is, but it's a gas as opposed to a liquid. Uh, and so one can only imagine what the technology applications are if you can produce something like that routinely. Um, now, the other reason for doing it is um, when you create a Bose-Einstein condensate, it's very sensitive to different types of fields. It's sensitive to gravitational fields, electric fields, and magnetic fields, which means you're essentially producing a quantum sensor and that quantum sensor can be used to determine sort of like your your inertial position, your inertial attitude for better, you know, reentry um, knowledge if you're going into Mars, for example. And it can also be used to determine the gravitational fields around other planets or other moons, which is one of the primary reasons why we send spacecraft um, to other planets is to understand their sort of their gravitational properties or their magnetic properties. So it has many different applications and doing it in the International Space Station lets you go to an even colder temperature, which is the reason why we're sending it there. Okay, let's try all that again. Let's try it at a third grade level oh. so that I can <laughs> just start over. Yeah, there's so much to it, so it might be better to sort of like I'm ask break in it particular down. areas. Let me, let okay. me break this down okay. because I understand what you're saying. This is uh, the, the Bose-Einstein, uh, is it con condensate? Condensate. Condensate, yeah. so like condensation in yes, a way. Yes, yes. Um, so the Bose-Einstein condensate is really the key to this whole thing. Uh, you're trying to you're trying to uh, create replicate that state of matter. Now this has been postulated before. So the one thing about this is you guys really aren't doing anything. You aren't looking for. You're not expecting anything to not happen. You're proving things that are already theoretically supposed to exist. Correct. We're getting to a colder temperature though. So as you chill things down further and further, you you actually just don't know what you're going to see. Okay, so there is a possibility of things that you may not know existed before. Yes. Okay. It's sort of an unknown. Okay. Um, I mean, that's pretty exciting because a lot of the stuff, a lot of the stuff people do is to test theories, especially with quantum mechanics, because it's so theoretical uh, that people think, oh, this, you know, based on the math, this is going to exist. And we're just testing to see if that exists, exists uh, as it was postulated. But it's much more exciting to be able to find something that you may stumble upon something brand new and change the world as we know it once again. <laughs> That'd be pretty impressive. But I, but I think um, just as an aside, though, the scientific method is just that, right? So and when it comes to theoretical physicists and theoretical physics, that's hard to say, um, people will postulate why they think things behave in a certain way. So the perfect example would be Einstein and his theory of relativity, right? So he made a postulation um, or he has a hypothesis, which is, you know, this is what gravity is. You know, this is the, you know, this is what space time is. And so people then go off and do an experiments to test that theory to either prove it or disprove it. And that's kind of how you are able to um, believe the new theories that theoretical physicists generate. So, for example, the recent LIGO um, experiment in success, right, where they actually measured gravitational waves is another proof of Einstein's theory of relativity. So it's these brilliant people who come up with these theories that explain the universe as it is out of their own minds, right? Mm -hmm. And then other scientists will go and do experiments to test those theories. So the, the, the nature of testing someone's hypothesis is the scientific method. It's how we actually um, are able to understand the world around us. So even though it may seem like, oh, well, somebody already said that this is the way it is, but you don't actually know until you actually continue to test it again and again and again. And one of the really interesting things is that the theory of um, special relativity or gravity isn't actually uh, 
doesn't necessarily mesh with the theory of quantum mechanics. Um, so people don't really understand why, but there is not a theory which brings together everything at this point in time, which would be the theory of everything. So that's one of the sort of unknowns right now is the sort of disconnect between quantum mechanics, atomic physics, um, and the theory of gravity and special relativity. Got it. Uh, it's kind of amazing because when you look at if you were to take quantum, I mean the fact that, that, that pieces of matter when cooled down to certain temperatures become a wavelength function. Um, it's, it's kind of, it's a weird thing to wrap your head around, really, when you, when you think about it. But what's kind of cool about it is if you, or if you look at like the Newtonian side. So let's say, you, you know, in that, whole, in that whole belief there's an atom, there's electrons floating around it, and all these atoms are bouncing around, and that's what, you know, the average kinetic energy is what temperature is, based on how fast they're bouncing into each other. And as you slow that to zero, where they're, they're not moving at all, you would expect in the world we live in now, if you were to throw a baseball and they just stop moving in air, it would just drop like a rock. So all these electrons would just be on the ground, you know. But yeah. that can't, it can't work like that. You can't have just a bunch of electrons and atoms like laying on the ground, not moving. Uh, so there must be some other weird thing that happens. And so uh, explain the weird thing that actually happens when you slow these things down to close to absolute zero. And also before you do that, talk about how close to absolute zero you are getting these gases. So our target temperature for the experiment on orbit is to get down to 100 times 10 to the minus 12 uh, Kelvin. So that's 100 picokelvin. So it's hard to put that into numbers other than uh, picokelvin or 100 sure. times 10 to the minus 12, which I think is like a billion times colder than the temperature of space. So it's right. very, very, very space cold. Space is like 3 degrees Kelvin, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's like incredibly cold. Yeah. Um, so... The other way of thinking about this is um, is to describe actually what a Bose-Einstein condensate is. So everybody knows that if you have um, a gas um, sort of at, let's say, we'll take water vapor, you know, a temperature of 100 degrees centigrade, and you start to cool it down, what happens? It condenses into a liquid, right? So it goes through a phase change. And so what happened back in, um, you know, the early 1900s is Albert Einstein um, got together with Bose, who is a, a Bengali scientist, ironically, where I'm from in India, so he's pretty popular I was going to get there. to that. I was going to okay. say, like, you... you <laughs> You're, you are personally pushing forward this, that um, yeah, that's kind of cool. It's like well, in your lineage. Um, which I think is, yeah, it's an interesting, it's, it's an interesting, uh, I guess, what would you call it, um, collaboration uh, that they had all those years ago. They postulated that if you took a gas, a very, very dilute gas, which means a really, really low density gas, and you can only really produce it if you have a vacuum chamber, and you cooled it down to a condensate temperature, um, because it's so dilute, it can't turn into a liquid, but it would turn into something else. It would turn into something called a Bose-Einstein condensate. And the whole purpose of having bosons is that bosons have the ability to occupy the same quantum state. So then what happens when you get down to almost absolute zero is all the atoms in your collection in this gas end up occupying the exact same wave function because they're allowed to because they're bosons, which means that every single atom in that gas of, um, in that ball of gas is doing the exact same thing. And so that means not only do you get a matter wave property for an individual atom, you get the exact same matter wave property for all the atoms in that collection overlapping each other. So what you get is a macroscopic um, subatomic particle. And that's what's so exciting about it is that you're able to see at a macroscopic scale, subatomic phenomena. And that's what's so unique and insightful about being able to produce one of these things is because just as like if you had a cell and you look at it on a slide, you can't see much. But if you start to look at that cell under a microscope, all of a sudden you see everything going on inside of it. So the same thing can be said about um, why a BEC is so important is because now you can see sort of in a microscopic scale the subatomic um, behavior of this gas of atoms all doing the same thing. I mean, that is a pretty interesting concept, a macroscopic view of subatomic particles. Or subatomic sub behavior. Subatomic behavior. Yeah. 
I mean, that's almost like an oxymoron, it seems like, right? It is, but then that's because the only way you can do that is if you create one of those Bose-Einstein condensates, right? Because you get multiple of them doing the same thing, overlapping each other, because they're essentially, you know, it's like a, a coherent matter wave. So everyone knows about, like, incoherence and coherence of waves. Oh, everyone and does, so, yeah. <laughs> no reason to go into that in the detail. Well, but I mean, just in case there's one or two people <laughs> listening. Well, if you think about it, if you want to think of a coherent water wave, think of a large, uh, like, wave on the ocean that a surfer might go onto, right? So you get all the uh, water moving in the exact same way, and you create this massive wave, and now you can sort of see the huge wave behavior as opposed to a little ripple on the surface of a pond. So it's like that, but it's ad um, it's like that, except it's an atom, and then the subatomic behavior of those atoms. So that's why it's so amazing is that you can actually see this collective subatomic behavior um, and explore it even further. So we don't really know what's going to happen when we get down to even colder and colder temperatures, but at least what we do know is what we've seen in the laboratory so far, which is the behavior becomes very ordered and that results in things such as superfluidity, right? So it's completely different, right? So you're going through a discontinuity. So at normal temperatures, you have atoms which are essentially behaving like billiard balls, like smacking into each other. They have different velocity vectors, different velocities themselves, um, colliding constantly. You have the exact opposite behavior in a Bose-Einstein condensate where every single atom is doing the exact same thing. So number one, you go through that transition where now you have this behavior. And then if you can harness matter to do what you want it to, then it can get you know, unique properties, which is why I keep on harnessing or focusing on the superfluidity aspect because superfluidity can lead to superconductivity. And what that means is being able to transmit powers over large distances with very little losses, right? So that's an obvious technology application. Um, but sometimes you do these things not because you have a, a, a set end goal, but just to uncover what's actually happening. And so two other things that will be looked at with the facility are the nature of gravity and then how complexity actually arises in the universe. So I think something that people don't know about, too, is that people understand single particle physics relatively well, like how do photons behave, how do electrons behave. But people don't understand how you go from photons, electrons, protons, and neutrons to the sun, the earth, and the moon. Once again, we understand how the sun and the earth and the moon um, behave with respect to each other, you know, gravitationally. But all that space in between is essentially unknown, right? Which is amazing, right? That there's a huge amount of things that we don't understand. And Socrates, my favorite quote, said something like, the one thing that we know is that we don't know anything. <laughs> Which is actually true, right? Yes. So, which is why doing these kinds of experiments fills in this enormous knowledge gap that we have. Yes. So, I mean, similar to that, and I don't want to quote, uh, I don't love quoting Donald Rumsfeld, but he said the known unknowns, which is kind of what you're talking about. We know the things we do not know, which is anything from, I think you said photons to the sun. Is that the whole yeah. spectrum that we're yeah. not familiar with? <laughs> yeah. Which is pretty spectrum. enormous. Yeah. yeah. In terms of how complexity arises. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm glad you brought it up. You're you're super focused on superfluidity. Um, it's it's uh, it's weird. It's weird. You're, uh, no, I'm just kidding. Because well, <laughs> ultimately, the easiest way to describe a, a Bose-Einstein condensate to people is that it's a superfluid. Because that will give you a better understanding of what does it really mean yeah. to have these kinds of uniform properties. And I, one of our science writers did a really nice job describing it as a, as dancers in a chorus line. So instead of having mm. basically you know a bunch of rugby players knocking into themselves during the course of the game, now all the atoms are behaving as dancers in the chorus line doing the exact same thing. And you know what that looks like, right? Relative to a bunch of rugby players yeah. <laughs> and dancers in a chorus line. I think um, synchronized swimming is a better analogy because it's super fluidity. Yeah, uh, that's that's you, you get that one. You get I to just, claim that one. All right. Good. <laughs> it's on record. I got. I just beat a scientist. Uh, now, now th so we're talking about cooling things down. In the actual cooling process, 
is intense, it's multi-stage, uh, and I got lots of notes on this. So let's talk about some of the ways in which we can cool things down to those temperatures. Because, uh, and I didn't know this before I started researching, but you can't just stick something in the freezer and it reach absolute zero. Yep. Um, it reaches A zero, but not absolute zero. They're two very different numbers. Yeah. Um, I, did you know that? You knew that, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. That's so 273 Kelvin versus zero. Yeah, it's Kelvin. a big difference. Yeah. It's a very big <laughs> difference. So now let's talk about some of the ways. One is laser cooling, which this is such a, a great concept that I didn't think about, but it makes sense. Uh, I'm going to describe it at a third grade level, and then you fill in the gaps where, where I'm wrong. I want to see how I do. Okay. <laughs> so you basically you have a gas that will absorb certain frequencies of light. And so what you can do is, is you're basically shooting a laser, a, a stream of photons, um, at that particular gas. And as they're moving in one direction, you're actually shooting them with photons that they'll absorb so that they are going against the current. So basically as if you were trying to swim up a waterfall or upstream. And then it's, you can shoot it from a bunch of different angles, and it basically slows, and slows the atoms down uh, much quicker than, than uh, other techniques. How close am I? Um, you're very close, and it's basically the only way to get down to these incredibly cold temperatures. Um, and so, uh, yeah, each atom and each isotope of each atom has a, a fingerprint, a spectroscopic um, fingerprint associated, which means that there's very specific frequencies of light that it can absorb, absorb and it, there's also very fre specific frequency of light that it will emit. And so if you can tune a laser to one of these resonance frequencies, then that particular atom will absorb that energy. And so the unique aspect of laser cooling, which takes it one step further, is that if you Doppler shift the resonance frequency coming from the laser, then it will only cool down atoms that are coming towards it. So that's really, so ultimately you're pushing on the atoms with light, um, which is somewhat counterintuitive because people think of light as not, um, because light or photons don't have mass, but they but you can push on something with light. And so if you Doppler shift the laser frequency so that you're only pushing on ones which are moving towards it, you can slow them down. And that was kind of the cool aspect of this is the Doppler shift because what that is essentially saying is the Doppler effect is, you know, much like you hear an ambulance, it sounds higher frequencies as it moves towards you, longer frequencies as it moves away from you. This is the same is true of light, which is part of the electromagnetic spectrum. So as things are moving towards you, they're actually red shifting they're coming towards you so it moves up towards the red on the spectrum. So if you adjust, you're saying basically if you fine tune it toward to that velocity, you can slow it down even more. Uh, that's kind of amazing when you think about it, that you're fine tuning the stream of electron or a stream of photons to slow things down. It's incredible. Yes, and people won the Nobel Prize for it. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a pretty yeah, big so deal. It was because I'm it, not the only one who yeah. thinks so. The entire Nobel <laughs> Committee believed that as well. And I think the one interesting aside too, because uh, there is kind of a link to something I can say relative to the Cold Atom Laboratory, what its capabilities are, is that it was only because photon-based lasers were invented that this could actually happen. So you can't actually create this state of matter in in a way without actually having the advent of lasers. So that's what's so neat about it. It's, it's, sort of, it's a human-made uh, state, right, in the sense that you can't get there without uh, lasers. And so wow. sometimes people would say, you know, when people first made lasers, like, what on earth are you making this laser for? And that's, you know, it's funny, right, because now we use lasers for everything from playing with your cat with a laser pointer to, um, you know, to LASIK surgery in your eyes to being able to create a Bose-Einstein condensate. So sometimes when you create something for the first time, you may not know what its future technology uses are, and it doesn't matter because somebody else is going to figure that out downstream. So anything that's invented could possibly be important at some point is what you're saying. Yeah. No matter I, how silly. Yeah. Pet, pet rock comes into play at some point in our history. 
Yeah, I mean, rocks are used for all kinds of things, right? <laughs> There's lots of rocks on Mars, <laughs> yes, right? But it, I think, yeah, it's it's creating these uh, new, um, creating or understanding physics to uh, greater detail or greater degree um, usually does have some kind of follow-on technology application that we've seen at least over the course of the past, you know, two centuries. Sure. Um, so now we, we, we get laser cooling. So that does the heavy lifting on getting these things cold. But that's not it. It doesn't get us down to 10 to the minus 18 pico Kelvin, right? That's not, we're almost there. <laughs> right. So, yeah. so we're the like micro-Kelvin regime. We're micro-Kelvin, right. We're not in pico, we're in micro. Now, how do we get to pico? There's a couple other techniques. Um, so evaporative cooling is a way to do this, right? So how does that work at this level? So the, just like atoms have a sensitivity to particular um, uh frequencies that we're talking about with laser cooling, they also have the ability to absorb and release um, other frequencies such as RF and microwave radiation. And so we use RF and microwave um, sort of evaporative cooling as another technique where we actually have a little antenna um, at a very specific frequencies of either microwave or RF radiation specific to the atom that we're looking at. Um, and we basically release or turn on that antenna, emit radiation at those frequencies. And what that does is it actually... Um, the atoms are able to absorb some of that energy if they're at a certain temperature and they get kicked out of the trap that they're in, and then all you're left with is the really cold ones. So you can think of it as sort of like slicing off the really hot atoms from a trap of atoms, and all you're left behind is the really cold ones. So if you got like a bunch of kids and one's spazzing out and he's getting everyone else excited, you're basically pulling the spazzes out so yes. that everyone else is calm and cool. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Uh, so another another technique is delta kick cooling, and you're using a magnetic field like a freeze ray. How does that work? That sounds amazing. You can only, so the, one, that's one of the reasons why it's advantageous to do this in microgravity is that particular technique you can't do um, in Earth-based laboratories. And the reason for that is because um, the atoms are held in a trap, in a magnetic trap, but on Earth they're fighting their own weight. So they, they have to be held in a really, really strong trap, and they can only be held there for a really short period of time. So you're only able to absorb them and cool them for you know milliseconds. So when you do this experiment in microgravity, uh, you have the ability to use um, the evaporative cooling technique as well as the delta kick cooling technique um, for essentially a longer period of time on the order of seconds, um, you know, in terms of observing how the whole thing evolves and that allows you to get to even colder temperatures. And there's one other, there's one other cooling technique, and that is adiabatic cooling. Oh, adiabatic. Adiabatic, adiabatic cooling. Um, that's like when you spray an aerosol can and it gets really cold. Uh, what goes on there? How does that how does that fall into this? It's really um, it's really just as something expands, it cools. And so because you're able to be in a really weak trap, you can expand quite a bit. And because you're not fighting under the pull of your own gravity, you don't fall out of the trap. So it's really just like the the aerosol example that as you release the gas from the high pressure container, um, the gas becomes lower and the thing cools. So you feel like the outside of the metal can becomes really cold. Or if you have a cup of coffee and you let it sit on the table, it evaporates and it gets cooler. So it's that same process. And once again, you can utilize that very effectively in microgravity because you can sit there for many seconds and cool and expand further and further. Um, so that's the reason why going into this microgravity environment really does facilitate these incredibly low temperatures. So this whole thing, is it's important, ideal, quintessential that this takes place in an, a microgravity environment. Yes. Because there's no other forces acting on it. There's nothing kind of messing around with what you want to do. Yeah, that's, that's actually another very important point is that um, when you are in Earth-based experiments, um, you get distorted by both the really strong magnetic trap you have as well as the gravitational uh, pull mm -hmm. uh, um, or the gravitational uh, sort of vector. So that actually distorts what you're trying to look at. So if you really wanted to see how something truly looks, if you can have it in a force-free environment, it gives you a lot more interesting information. 
And so this is this is going to launch in 2017, June. Is this about wh- where you guys are going to put this up in the? It's going to be in the fall of of uh, this year coming up. So the fall. Do you yep. guys have a date, or is it just? It's a little bit TBD, just because there are many <laughs> launches that go up to the space station. Sure. So it'll probably be in like the October November timeframe. Okay. Now, one of the interviews that I saw said that there's dark matter applications for this. Um, let's talk about dark matter. It's my favorite type of matter. Uh, it's very broody. What what is dark matter and why is it important? So I I will caveat this to say that I am not a um, astronomer and astrophysicist, so I will give you my engineer's version of what dark matter is. Um, but uh, what I think is so fascinating is that so in the universe that we understand, it only five percent is matter that we understand, which is like matter that you and I are made up of. Um, you know, the sun's made up, the planets are made up of. That is real matter. Um, the rest of it is actually made up of dark matter and dark energy, which is something which we infer its presence. Um, primarily gravitationally, but we can't actually see because dark matter and dark energy do not exist or do not, not exist, apologize, they do not um, uh, interact with the electromagnetic spectrum. So we can't measure them in the traditional ways, like we can't see them in that sense. But because we understand what the expansion rate is of the universe based off of the amount of real matter that's present, we know that there has to be something else there, which we postulate to be dark energy, which explains the rate at which the universe is expanding. And then similarly, the way that we see different bodies um, orbiting each other in the universe can't be explained by just the presence of uh, regular matter. So there's some other dark matter, which is gravitationally holding things together. Um, And so we postulate their existence by making observations. And then we apply those observations to the theory of relativity, which tells us how things should interact gravitationally. And without the presence of dark matter and dark energy, we can't actually match the expansion of the universe rate and then how, you know, for example, uh, black holes orbit each other. So it's so weird because you can't see it, um, but nevertheless, we know it's there because of the way we observe how things move in the universe. Well, people didn't think quantum quarks and bosons and things existed because they couldn't see them either, but they were postulated. Scientific experiments like the one you're doing prove them correct, and uh, maybe there will be a dark matter experiment sometime in the future. I hope so. Um, one of the, so, so talk about how you use 3D printing to teach astronauts how to fix this. Because when it goes up, kind of the people from uh, JPL are not going to be involved in this at all. That's correct. So um, the you, one of the advantages of doing something in a space station is that you have access to human beings who can do repairs and upgrades on orbit. So uh, we decided to take advantage of that. And so we designed the instrument so that it could be modular, which means that almost all of the pieces of it um, can slide out and boxes can be taken off and replaced by the crew that's on board. And so the best way to train people who aren't familiar with the design um, is to actually build something right, that they can work with. So we decided to use 3D printing to make a full... 3D mock-up of the instrument, which includes all of the individual plates that boxes are mounted to and all the individual boxes and then the appropriate screws for each one of those boxes and then the appropriate, you know, cabling in terms of the end connectors of the cables so that um, we are able to have the crew come out there and and go through the procedures themselves and that we can develop the procedures in a very detailed way because we have an actual built system. So even though it's not a functional version of it, it's a uh, form function of it. So it's identical in terms of how everything uh, fits together. That's pretty amazing. I mean, that's it's cool that we come we've come to the point where we can take we don't have to 
you know, use very technical, expensive equipment to teach people how to prepare it. Um, although th- I think there are nuances and intricacies that I think are necessary on the actual device. Wouldn't you agree? That well, but we did design it um, with this in mind, that you couldn't do any kind of alignments um, after the fact for a whole variety of reasons, because you just wouldn't have the diagnostics available to you to do any kind of, you know, realignment of the laser beams, for example, with the sure. vacuum chamber where the BEC is being created. Um, so um, the system actually relies largely on the use of fiber optics. So sometimes what you'll do with lasers is you'll use free space optics, which means you have alignment from this optic to this optic to this optic. So what we did instead was use lasers with a fiber optic output, which means you just connect the fiber optic, um, screw it to the terminal, and then you're done. And all of the alignments are captured within something which never gets shaken or never gets, um, you know, moved or changed. Sure, sure. Uh, I mean, it's a pretty amazing idea. I, I'm I'm surprised it hasn't been used. Is it used pretty often? I imagine this is. I mean, this seems like a game changer for teaching people. Um, so nothing like this has ever been done before. And one of the reasons why um, we were able to use fiber optics uh, for this type of application is because when you are inside of the space station, you actually never uh, see a vacuum environment. You're always in sort of a short sleeves environment. So when you're in the launch vehicle, you're in a pressurized cabin. When you go into an airlock um, at the space station, you're in a pressurized environment. And then when you get moved to the interior of the space station, you're in a pressurized environment. So that means that you're in a more benign environment um, from a temperature variation perspective, which enables you to use fiber optics. Because um, if you are an optical instrument out in the vacuum of space, you have to deal with really large temperature swings as you're going mm. between, you know, eclipse and the, the sunlight side of your orbit, and therefore you get contractions and expansions. So the environment of space station actually facilitates this sort of complicated optomechanical design. But no, it hasn't been done before. So this is the first time that this is being done in a space-based application. Wow. Now let's talk about the, the future applications of this. Um, I think one, an atom laser is also is possible with, with what may come out of the cold atom laboratory. Superfluidity, which you've gone over um, several times, uh, which is pretty amazing. One of the things, now correct me if I'm wrong on the science on this, because I, I, I couldn't believe this was true. With, with um, boson, uh, with Bose-Einstein condensates, it, they actually significantly slow down the speed of light. Is that true? They can. So I have seen an experiment by somebody um, out in Harvard, I think it was, where um, they basically will shoot a laser beam into the photon, I'm sorry, into the Bose-Einstein condensate, and then uh, they watch it sort of like propagate through, and then as it's going through, it's slowed down. And really what's happening is the photons are being absorbed and re-emitted, absorbed Uh, and re-emitted as it's going through there. So it's sort of like a, yeah, it's sort of like going through molasses, I guess you can think of it that way. Or like if you're on a highway, you stop off at every restroom, like every rest stop, and then get back on the highway <laughs> right? kind of yeah yeah it's like your average your average miles per hour drops completely but you're still moving when you're moving you're still moving fast but the nice thing is that there will be variations between the bathrooms on the highway <laughs> whereas in the BEC every single atom that absorbs it and, re- and re-emits it will be identical to the next <laughs> so there won't be any change to the information the information will be retained well it's not a perfect metaphor <laughs> but it's a pretty pretty good one uh, so the number I heard is that it slows down from the speed of light to 38 miles per hour. Is That that can't possibly be true. I don't know the actual um, numerics of it, but I have seen the experiment from the Harvard professor, and it was something like that. Yeah, it was like the speed of a bicycle or something That's like that. That's crazy. Yeah, which is pretty amazing, yeah. So that has real-world applications. I, I think that the probably the best example would be quantum computing because you can use it as a means of transmitting information, and the information is perfectly retained on the other side. Wow. That's crazy. I mean, that's just such a, a mind-blowing thing. 
Um, so now, so that's that's your work on the Cold Atom Laboratory, and you're um, now. I'm not I'm not spoiling anything here. You are a female, and you're very. I didn't know. Just you kidding. Are, no, <laughs> I, I just wanted to make that clear to everyone listening. And so, and, and you're a minority as well, and you are very. Um, you, you like to promote women and minorities in science, and I have to ask the question as a white male, why? White men landed something on the moon. We've been doing a great job so far. Just let us have this one. Have you not seen Hidden Figures? No, I haven't. Why would I do that? Because <laughs> it's a great movie. And, uh, and well, There's lots of great movies <laughs> I haven't seen. <laughs> well, I mean, the purpose of the movie, though, was that uh, you know one of the key people to making this successful, um, I guess it was John Glenn's first flight, right? The person who, who was key to making those calculations and have him yeah. uh, survive was an African-American woman. Oh, that's great. That's wonderful. <laughs> So, I was trying to invalidate your first statement. Oh, it didn't do a very good job. Uh, so, but why? Why? Um, so, why do you? Why do you want to do this? There's well, so this is my my personal. The way I like to describe this is that if you had a room full of clones, mm -hmm. each clone would come up with the exact same answer to the to a question that was asked, or the exact same solution, because you don't have any variation. So when you have diversity of people, diversity of backgrounds, uh, diversity of experiences, uh, diversity of expertises, you get much better and more interesting solutions to problems. And you need only look at Silicon Valley, right, where Silicon Valley, you know, where they're inventing things left and right, has a huge immigrant population, right? So a lot of people who come up with the new ideas, new techniques, are people from other places in the world. So it's having that diverse background of people um, with their unique experiences, which allow you to come up with uh, more interesting solutions to your problems. And even in our team, for example, um, you know, on my curiosity team, you know, we have people from all over the world. Like if you watch the seven minutes of terror movie, right, you have a person from South America, a person from two people from Asia, you know, and then, you know, two um, American guys. So when you have these diverse teams, you actually, I think, end up being much more successful in terms of coming up with solutions to complex problems. That's well, why, I think. <laughs> well, I think that's a great answer. And I think that that's the exact reason why America as a country is, is the leader in innovation, because we have so many immigrants. We have so many different ideas. Uh, I think our education system could use a little work in getting some of those people and those ideas out into jobs that are good for them. Um, but I, I completely agree with your statement. Um, I mean, even as a white man, that's against my own against my own interests. But I agree with you 100 percent. Also against someone's own interest. I got to ask you if you're the only woman in pot. Well, one of very few women in a sea of eligible bachelors um, in, in your field. Why would you want to change that? If I was the only man in a sea <laughs> of eligible women. I wouldn't I would I would try to stop all this is my competition, but I would stop all men from joining that field. I would dissuade <laughs> them repeatedly. And you want to encourage it. Why do you want to encourage? Because you don't care about competition? What's the deal? <laughs> I don't know. I guess I, I in the work environment I'm not thinking about it in that way. So and I think because I have been in a male dominated field for so long, I, I it's just what I've gotten used to. It's like having a bunch of brothers. Right. Yeah. So yeah, I I don't really think about it in that way. So that's never really crossed my mind it's never crossed your mind not really no but then yeah not really no okay and these are also engineers and nerds <laughs> oh <laughs> nerd slam uh, which i am too <laughs> no that's okay i get it i've seen some of your colleagues i understand completely uh so now how can people uh, everyone's going to want to know more about this how can people get in touch with you uh you do a lot of work in the community 
Um, tell us a little bit about that and how people can get in touch with you. So I actually use Twitter a lot as a means of um, sort of uh, doing public outreach. So I've connected with a I lot of... I can attest to that. I can attest <laughs> to your love for Twitter. <laughs> I, I, I've made contacts with lots of people, <laughs> like teachers. And then, um, yeah, I actually was able to use Twitter to make contacts with people all over India so that I was able to go to India and do sort of like around the country um, oh, tour, cool. speaking to kids. Uh, and that was all based off of social media, um, making those kinds of connections. And it, I think it's really exciting. And then most recently, I was out in um, Australia, and same thing. Those connections were made from people that I met um, via Twitter. So. I, I would I would equate your strange fascination with Twitter to your strange fascination with superfluidity. Uh, both are, are fun and useful, but uh, I, I it's a very strange way to communicate to me because I'm 100 <laughs> years old. Uh, but you use it very, <laughs> you use it very well. Uh, so people can get you on Twitter, and um, where else can they find you? Um, I would say that's probably the best way. To, uh, you can also send me messages to like my Facebook page or something, but I'm usually more likely to respond to the Twitter account just because it's easier to respond for that. I get it. Just like I respond to you. <laughs> that's, that's true. Exclusively. <laughs> I, you, <laughs> that's how we set this interview up is via Twitter. Exactly. See? Uh, so what other projects you have coming up? What's, what's after the uh, Cold Atom Laboratory? I several really interesting things, actually. So right now I'm looking at uh, ways to get to the ocean on Europa. Um, so we're coming up with a suite of technologies which are needed to be able to land on the surface of Europa, then either melt and or melt and or drill through the ice to get down to the ocean below. So hmm. that's something I'm working on right now, which I think is super exciting because... And Europa is a moon of Jupiter. Yes. And if there's anywhere in our solar system that we're likely to find some sort of, you know, precursor life forms or something like that, it will probably be uh, in the ocean of Europa. So or, we know that Europa actually has a liquid water ocean. Yeah. Well, hold on a second. What do you mean sub... Uh, what if there's a higher intelligent race of mer people down there? There could be. Yeah, there could be. <laughs> and I just saw on Twitter this morning a permaid, which was a cat wearing a tail, <laughs> a fish tail. Wait, did they genetically know. engineer it or was it? No, it was knitted. Oh, it's much less interesting. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Unless you're a cat person. Um, yes, I'm a cat person. But okay. so that's one thing that we're working on right now. And so that's really, really challenging because the ice layer on um, Europa is, you know, probably around 10 kilometers thick. So we don't have any experience, like Earth-based experience of being able to get through a 10 kilometer thick ice layer. And of course, the ice temperature on Europa is cryogenic ice. So it's down at, you know, 100 Kelvin versus, you know, 273 Kelvin. And then as things get colder, they get harder, which mm -hmm. makes them more difficult, you know, to drill through and to melt through. Um, so I think that's actually probably the most fascinating thing we could possibly do within the next, you know, 10 to 15 years. And that is true space exploration. I mean, that's incredible stuff. Yeah, that's like deep water horizon. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's, it's out there. Yeah. That's pretty amazing. Um, well, Dr. Sengupta, Anita, DAS, I really appreciate you being on the program today. Um, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you. And I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glencoe production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. Go to fascinatingnouns.com to listen to every episode, or you can follow the show on social media. You'll find links to the show's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and YouTube pages at the bottom of our Fascinating Nouns webpage. 
Now, if you don't want to miss a single bit of information, you can subscribe to the newsletter, which will tell you about upcoming guests as well as new projects that I have in the works. And if you don't want to miss an episode, and I don't recommend that you do, you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and now Google Play. And if you like what I do and want to learn about other things, check out all my projects on DanielJGlenn.com. Thank you for listening. End of transmission.